Hi there, I'm Alan Fersfeldt and you are listening to the 62nd episode of the Urban Astronomer Podcast. As the year comes to a close, we're slowly building our podcasting momentum back up and we have a whole bunch of content lined up for the next episode of the season. Last episode, we talked to Dr. Julia Healy. At the time the conversation was recorded, she was still finishing up her PhD, which of course now she's graduated and uh, it's added a new context to that whole episode. This episode though, we are doing something a little different. Traditionally, we alternate between interviews and science explainy bits, but the segment that I wrote is a bit more philosophical than usual and ran a bit short, so I've added something a little more topical, uh, some astronomy news. Before we get there though, I'd like to invite you all to visit the show's website at www.urban-astronomer.com. Aside from being where you can find the show notes of each episode of this podcast, it's also full of astronomy news and articles that I've been writing since 2009. And while you're there, I'd like to draw your attention to the menu at the top, which has an item on the right called Support the Show. That's right, folks, this is where you will find all our mechanisms for accepting the donations that you are so generously planning to send our way for Christmas. Top of the pile is, of course, our Patreon page, where you can commit to a small but regular payment of a few dollars to support the show and keep me going. But if you're not keen on tying yourself down to paying money for something that you might not even be listening to in a few months, we have other options as well. And with that said, I'll close my outstretched hand, put away my begging tin, and get on with the rest of the show. We don't often do news stories on the Urban Astronomer podcast, but I wanted to tell you about some work that was released a little while ago, which I covered on the weekly Space Hangout with Fraser Kane recently. It came up a lot in my news feeds in the week before we recorded that episode, and I had some opinions on how it was covered, but there were some details that we didn't get to, so this is my chance. So briefly, the news is about the largest star yet found to have an exoplanet, and the headlines that I didn't like were going on about it being an impossible planet. Now, obviously, it is not impossible, because not only did we detect it, we directly imaged it with the ESO's Very Large Telescope, or VLT. It's right there. We know it's there. We can see it. It's ridiculous to call it impossible. Now, What they actually meant by that was that our current planetary formation models predict that stars that large are not capable of forming planets because they are too hot and energetic. Stars form from a collapsing cloud of gas and dust, and when nuclear fusion begins at the core of the new star, when the star comes to life and starts blasting heat and light and radiation out from its surface, it pushes back on the material falling inwards and eventually blows it away, dispersing it into space. But while that happens the material starts to coalesce into clumps, and some of these clumps grow large enough to start pulling in more material through their own gravity, and to cut a long story short, that's where planets come from. This whole process takes millions of years, but if the star is hot and bright and energetic enough, it blows all that stuff away hard enough that there isn't time for the planets to form, and that's why we thought that the biggest and hottest stars couldn't have planets. So, how did we get to this new place where we've realized that this isn't quite right? There's a project called the B-Star Exoplanet Abundance Study, or BEAST. Now what astronomers do in this project is look at these very same hot massive stars, which on the standard spectral classification scale for stars are called B-stars, and use the very latest and most sensitive telescopes to look for exoplanets. Why? Well, if your theory says that something is impossible, but nobody has ever actually checked, then a good scientist will go ahead and check, because challenging existing theory is just a part of what makes a good scientist. 
I mean, they're still, still, a century later, coming up with more tests to check if Einstein's theories of relativity are correct. So this experiment is really just due diligence for a scientist. So what they did on the BEAST project is to use these monster telescopes in Chile to look at B-stars in the Scorpius-Centaurus association and check to see if there's anything really faint in the neighborhood. Of course, just seeing a faint speck of light doesn't prove anything. It could be a very distant star right on the limit of the telescope's power that just happens to line up. Or it could be a tiny new asteroid in our own solar system. So the first thing they do is measure its movement through space. If it matches the star, then there's a good chance that they're connected. Then they look at the color. And if it's glowing brightest in the near infrared, they know it's not a star. So physical objects moving with a star, that's a possible detection. So once they finished the survey and had a list of exoplanet candidates, they simply waited a few years and then went back and did it all again. Each of those candidates that was still there, it's a confirmation. And as a bonus, they can now measure how far it has moved since the first detection and they've got some idea of its orbit. So one of the exoplanets that they found was orbiting a star called B Centauri, which is a fourth magnitude star in the constellation of Centaurus. You can actually see the star with the naked eye if you're in the southern hemisphere and you're under a reasonably dark sky. But B Cent is also known to be a double star, with its members orbiting so close to each other that we've never been able to separate them out visually or photographically. We only know it's a double because, as they orbit, they swing each other around, causing the whole system to wobble slightly, and that is something that we can detect spectroscopically. So, from the color of that star and the period of the wobbles, we can calculate a reasonable estimate of its mass and temperature. And we know that the larger of the two in that pair is a B star, somewhere between 6 and 10 times the mass of our own sun, and with a temperature of about 18,000 kelvins. Now that's extremely hot, so hot that it doesn't shine red or yellow or white or even blue. It is an intensely hot, bright, ultraviolet star. That is a harsh environment for planets to form in, and as we discussed earlier, we always thought that this made it impossible for planets to form. And yet, the beast astronomers saw an exoplanet. And not just any old world, an absolutely enormous super Jupiter, a gas giant fully 10 times bigger than Jupiter. This world, catalogued B Centauri B, is not only enormous, it's also insanely far from its star, orbiting at a distance of 550 astronomical units. That's 100 times further out than Jupiter is from our own Sun, and 550 times further out than the Earth. So what's going on? Well, first up, the sheer size of this exoplanet is actually the least surprising thing about it. We had already noticed over thousands of exoplanet detections that small stars tend to have small exoplanets and large stars tend to have larger exoplanets. This seems kind of obvious since a large star always comes from a large initial protostellar nebula, so there's going to be a lot more material that can go into making both the star and its planets. Observations bear this out, so it's actually not surprising that uh, the star up to 10 times larger than the Sun could have an exoplanet 10 times larger than Jupiter. But the distance, that's wild. Almost all exoplanet detections so far have planets extremely close into their stars, often significantly closer than Mercury. So what's with that discrepancy? Well, again, this goes away when we look at the bigger picture. 
Until very recently, the two methods of reliably detecting an exoplanet have been the transit method, which uh, relies on a, when a planet's orbit happens to line up exactly between us and the star, and we notice that the star's brightness very briefly dips by a tiny amount because the planet is uh, moved in front of it, and the radial velocity method, which is exactly the same method that we use to detect B Centauri's binary partner. The radial velocity method is hard to do, though, because planets are many orders of magnitude lighter than stars, so the wobble that they add to a star's movement is orders of magnitude smaller. And similarly, the transit method is also not actually a very reliable way of finding exoplanets, because not only do you have to look at the star at exactly the right time to spot that dipping in brightness, but the orbit of the planet has to be inclined at exactly the right angle for it to pass between the star and us in the first place. So naturally, both of these methods are biased towards large exoplanets that are very close to their stars. The smaller the exoplanet, or the further its orbit, the lesser its influence on the star, and the slimmer the chance of it passing in front of the star. So it makes sense that we're missing a lot of small exoplanets, and that we're missing almost all of the more distant ones. Now, the direct detection method has an opposite bias. Spotting a planet against the intense glare of a star is insanely hard. It's like pointing your binoculars at a stadium floodlight from 100 kilometers away and hoping to spot a mosquito sitting on its edge. We're only just now able to build telescopes that are both sensitive enough to spot the planets without being blinded by the star, but even now the job is made much easier by having an exoplanet be really far away from the star. The further that separation, the easier it is to make out the exoplanet, and so direct detection is biased towards really big, bright planets that are far away from their star, and against planets that are close in. So much for this detection seeming to contradict observed patterns. But how does such a planet form in the first place when we know for a fact that big hot stars push dust and gas away so aggressively? The answer, according to the paper which announces the discovery, might actually be very simple. If you think about the dynamics of how a cloud will be blown out from a star and try to picture it in your head, you'll see that the cloud doesn't just fade away into nothing, rather it hollows out. The stellar wind and radiation pressure will be strongest close to the star and get progressively weaker as you get further away, so instead of dissipating cleanly, the material will sort of scoop outwards, moving out in a big, slowly expanding shell. And with the sort of truly massive protostellar nebulae that gives birth to a star as large as this one, the protoplanetary disk will be correspondingly enormous. The very distant reaches of that protoplanetary disk will disperse far more slowly than the interior and will be much denser to start with. And that, according to this hypothesis, is how you can get so-called impossible planets forming at impossible distances around impossibly large stars. Some years ago, I attended a public lecture about the 18th century French astronomer Louis Lacaille. The speaker had recently written a biography about him, and the lecture covered a lot of ground talking about his education, his time stationed in what is now Cape Town, and his pioneering astronomical work. While describing his education, the speaker listed the subjects that Lacaille had studied, and one of them attracted some indulgent chuckles and rolling of eyes from the audience. The subject was rhetoric. As scientists, we don't rely on clever words or rhetorical arguments to find the truth. We use the scientific method because it is supposed to be a guarantee of absolute, definite truth, free from bias and error. Unfortunately, when we talk about this, we often gloss over one small problem. Not everybody agrees on exactly what the scientific method actually is. 
There are several philosophical schools of thought on how best to find truth through empirical measurement. The practical nitty-gritty of applying these methods changes depending on what branch of science you're working in, though. Cosmologists, for example, only have one single universe to work with, so they can't use population studies or conduct double-blind experiments. You can't set up an experimental universe in a controlled universe. Medical researchers are bound by ethical considerations, or they are these days at least, so they have to use animal models instead of actual human subjects for many experiments. But the general idea is recognising that despite what Aristotle and Sherlock Holmes might think, pure reason will not yield practical truth, because the human mind is fundamentally prone to logical fallacies and other reasoning errors. And even if that were not true, it is quite easy to construct any number of models that are 100% logical, consistent, and reasonable, but that are also entirely imaginary and unrelated to the real world that we actually live in. For example, I run a small business, and it's not hard at all to create a set of books with entirely made-up numbers that show that I am enormously successful and wealthy, with thousands of delighted clients and billions of dollars in assets. And so long as the books balance, they'll fool anybody who doesn't conduct an audit to compare that accounting model with the reality of my bank account. Now incidentally, this is a natural thing that people do, and it's common enough that we invented an entire class of crime to describe it. Fraud! Scientists believe that in order to answer their questions about the world around them, in order to approach truth and avoid committing intellectual fraud, we need to find ways to overcome or compensate for these flaws that are built into the basic design of the human brain. So the various takes on the scientific method all have certain common threads. You need to come up with an idea and develop it into a hypothesis by working out all the details, developing the maths, making sure that the whole thing is logically consistent and that it fits into what we think we already know, and, you know, just that it generally makes sense. We then test that hypothesis by making observations of the world or conducting experiments to collect physical evidence and see if that evidence matches what the hypothesis predicted. When you think you've confirmed your hypothesis, you show your work to other scientists who will then attempt to find your mistakes and either confirm your results or not. Sometimes they'll spot a mistake in your work, sometimes they'll try to repeat the experiment on their own and report whether they got the same results or not, and sometimes they'll just point out that many previous scientists have had the same idea, but that they were not able to make anything out of it. This part, where we show our work to others and ask them to check it, is formalised in something called peer review, and there's a whole process that's been ironed out over the centuries. It's bureaucratic and slow, and it can be quite brutal. But the idea is that the machine of science slowly and inexorably grinds forward, improving our collection of scientific knowledge and bringing us ever closer to the truth. It's not perfect. The machine sometimes stalls or rolls backwards before resuming its slow progress forwards. But on the whole, it seems to mostly work. Scientists live and breathe this stuff. It's the environments in which they have to do their work, whether they like it or not, and it's not especially friendly to outsiders. If you haven't experienced it for yourself, just try to grab a recent paper from a big-name science publisher like Nature or Science and read it. If you've got the money to afford access to the paper in the first place, you're unlikely to understand much that's written inside it. You need training and experience just to know the language and the format of these things. 
Now, this isn't a problem if you're a professional scientist. You've got both of those things, and the university or research institute that you work for is probably picking up the bill for all the papers you'd be expected to read. But for science journalists and communicators, science hobbyists, and almost anybody else who is not employed as a professional researcher, and especially for regular ordinary folk who aren't that interested to start with, these publications are so inaccessible that they might as well not exist. So we have a problem in that the final product of any scientist's work is a paper describing in careful, very specific detail exactly what they are proposing, backed up with evidence and a detailed explanation of why they think that this is true, to which other scientists can refer to properly understand what's going on, but that which is also pretty meaningless to almost anybody else. Scientists use these papers daily to communicate the work that they and their colleagues are doing, but they're only work for scientists. The general public are left out. Many scientists don't particularly care about this, because they don't have to after all. Their job is to make the discovery and do the research. It doesn't really matter to them whether somebody outside of their immediate field understands what they're doing, so long as the work gets done and the results are published. It's the job of their PR departments to handle general communication, and it comes down to science communicators like myself to take that work and translate it into something that makes some kind of sense to ordinary folks. And I should add here that many people refer to this as dumbing down, and that's not what we're doing at all, because that implies that the audience isn't smart enough or something, but it's really nothing to do with brains. The problem is not that these science papers are some form of pure elevated knowledge that you and I are not clever enough to understand, rather it's just that it's so loaded with jargon. Have you ever read the financial news and some guys going on about different types of interest rates and ETFs and domestic policies and it's all just so many words that don't really mean a lot to you? Or maybe you've been in hospital and overheard two doctors discussing a case and it's all just a stream of big words and acronyms that you've never heard in your life. Or maybe it's the IT guys at work, right? That's really all this is. These are specialists in their field talking about things that the rest of us simply don't know about because we don't have the years or decades of training and experience. A single acronym or jargon word encompasses a whole world of concepts and ideas that specialists already know, so it makes perfect sense to them and it's useful. But if you don't have that background knowledge, then all this becomes meaningless. So when I want to explain to you, listening to this podcast, how say nuclear fusion works in the core of the sun, I have to take a few shortcuts because what I'm telling you in that 20-minute segment should ideally make sense to you and be reasonably truthful. But it is by necessity going to leave out a lot of information. A physics degree takes at minimum three years in this country. That's three years of lectures, tutorials, practical experiments, classroom discussions, and demonstrations. It involves careful study of multiple textbooks totaling many thousands of large formats, densely printed pages. I can't shrink that down to 20 minutes, no matter how clever I am. So instead, I come up with analogies. I'll try to build up on ideas that you already know from high school or daily life or common sense. You are not going to pass any exams or qualify for any degrees based on what I'm telling you, but you might come away with the sense that you understand something a little bit better than you did before. So that's all well and good. I work hard to try to strip difficult concepts down to a basic level that can be explained in 20 minutes. You already know that. What does any of this have to do with rhetoric? Well, how do you, as a skeptical, enlightened, modern individual, know that I'm telling the truth. 
If you're new to the show, it hasn't been recommended to you by anybody you trust, you don't have the physics or astronomy background to be able to evaluate my accuracy, and maybe you just watched a bunch of bad science videos on YouTube, or maybe you even saw a moon landing conspiracy video, and now you're not sure what to think. How do you know that what I'm saying is right? How does any human hearing any information from a new source that they don't already trust decide whether it's true or not? I'll tell you a secret. It's got very little to do with evidence. I mean, when I describe individual hydrogen atoms interacting at the heart of a star, it's not as if you can check for yourself, is it? You can't just go to your backyard and put some hydrogen atoms under a magnifying glass and see for yourself. So how do you know? You've got no choice but to either trust me, or go ask somebody else and trust them, or find some online article hosted on a website that you trust, and check to see if it agrees with me. But generally, I think most people listening to the show already know at least a little bit about the subjects I talk about, and the things that I say flow logically on from what they already know. I make an effort to not just tell you the facts, but also provide the background, tell the story of how we figured those facts out, and maybe throw some analogies in to help those ideas settle in. It's made easier by the fact that you're a sympathetic audience. You didn't download these episodes to find faults with me, you downloaded them to learn something new, and if you really don't like what you hear, you're just going to unsubscribe and move on anyway. But what if I'm trying to communicate something important that you don't necessarily already want to know about? What if I'm trying to persuade you to get vaccinated against the latest pandemic? Or that you need to vote for politicians who will take real action to reverse anthropogenic climate change. Or that you shouldn't smoke because it's really bad for your health. Or any topic at all that politicians have decided to turn into an us-versus-them platform. What if the science that I'm trying to communicate is actually really important, but also kind of boring? And I have to try and persuade people who aren't already kind of on my side to start with. How do you persuade someone to accept the truth of something that they don't want to believe? Well, that's where rhetoric comes in. Western education, dating back to the 8th century, was centered on teaching seven subjects that were called the liberal arts. Liberal arts, in this case, means the arts of liberty, to set your mind free, to educate you to the point where you are no longer, you know, just going to believe whatever you're told. That you can't be controlled by people who are feeding you a specific message. The idea was that these subjects provided a rounded baseline education that would set your mind free to be able to understand the world around you, and they included subjects like arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy, but the most important subjects were grammar, logic, and rhetoric. I like to think that these were seen as important because they were the foundations of truth-seeking. Grammar and logic to be able to define a problem, find a solution and communicate it clearly, and rhetoric to be able to persuade others of the truth of what you had said. So when, for example, Galileo pointed his telescope at Jupiter and discovered its four largest moons, and over the course of days and weeks saw how they orbited the planets, and realized that this meant that the Earth was not the center of all motion in the universe after all, he relied on rhetoric to persuade his audience that he was a. telling the truth about what he had seen, and b. that it meant what he said it did. We all use rhetoric all the time. When we are late for work and explain to the boss why we shouldn't be penalized for this, when our children are asking for the hundredth time if they can have some special treat and we're so tired of explaining why they can't have it that we now just want the conversation to end. We use it when we're talking to our insurance company to file a claim because we're subconsciously worried that they might think we're lying and so we need to be more persuasive. Rhetoric is something that all humans engage in. 
whatever their age or social standing or level of education. It's simply one part of our communications toolkit. It is inappropriate to use in a scientific paper because that is a highly specific form of communication that specifically tries to present evidence into pure logic. But it is a mistake to carry that approach over in all communication. Because no matter how often we tell ourselves as scientists that only the facts matter, that's simply not how the average human mind works. If you care at all whether people outside of your immediate specialization are going to believe that your work is true, that take you seriously, then you're going to have to allow yourself to use rhetorical techniques when you present your work. And that's us for this episode. So if you enjoyed the show and would like to help out in some way, I would love to hear from you, uh, letting me know what you liked, what you didn't like. And if you know someone else who might also enjoy it, why not let them know about the show? A surprising number of people still don't know how podcasts work, so you can even use the show as an excuse to install a podcast player on their phone and show them how to find other shows as well. But please get back to us, let us know. Uh, you can just mail us directly at podcast at urban-astronomer.com. But what about you? Are you still listening to the show by clicking a play button on the website? Get with the time, Grandpa. It's the 21st century. There's an app for that. Seriously, it's far better to just subscribe to the show so that new episodes will come straight to you as soon as they're ready without you having to try and remember to download them manually. Just head on over to the website at www.urban-astronomer.com and look for the subscribe link. Then choose the option that best suits your device. We've even got an email option. Whenever an episode comes out, you'll get an email letting you know all about it with a link to the page. Just a little convenience we've thrown in to make your life just that tiny bit easier. Anyway, keep listening. Feel free to support my work with a donation. Remember to follow me on Twitter at UAstronomer and try not to miss any of those rare opportunities to look up and see the stars in this cloudy, rainy summer. Clear skies, everybody, and goodbye. Goodbye.